What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is truly legendary. Grace Slick. Grace, glad to have you on. Hello. I got to ask, we're in the hills above Malibu. Where were you during the fire? I was right here, and they said mandatory evacuation. So I went with a friend of mine to a hotel in Santa Monica and watched what I thought was my house burning down on television. Turns out the property around it is burned up but not the house. So I'm back where I used to live. Wow, that's great. Now, people always think you think of you as a North Cal kind of girl, and here we are in SoCal. And there's a really big different mindset, whatever. How'd you end up in SoCal? Um, I moved down here. I thought my daughter was down here. So I thought, I, I've always liked L.A. Most people from San Francisco are real snobby about L.A. Right. And I want to say to them, how about the movie industry, which has influenced your life, whether you think so or not? This is a storytelling land, and that's been what people have done uh, forever, is tell stories either around a fire or in a big cinema So arena. What, are, what are a couple of your favorite movies? Oh, start for starters, the old uh Disney stuff, Fantasia, Snow White, and the Seven Dwarves. But during the 50s, I didn't care for the style of drawing that they did with, right. at Disney. Uh, I like the earlier style. Like uh, you have Night on Bald Mountain in Fantasia, and you see this black mountain, and it starts opening up, and it's this horrible creature with red eyes. I mean, it was really well done. So I like that. The Red Shoes. Uh, that taught me, don't give up. She kills herself. She, oh, I can't decide whether I want to be a ballerina or, or be married to this guy. How about both? You can't do both? Come on. 
So I wanted it all, the kid, the man, the job, and it can be done. Something's going to suffer, though. It's either okay, the kid. So, you, so assuming, looking back at your career from an outside perspective, you've achieved all of that. More or less, yeah. You hang on to it for a while. Right. Uh, I think uh, the person who suffered most with this is my daughter because she's all sensitive and stuff, which is part of her generation. They have like a lot of issues. Okay, let's start. With, you don't have any issues? Oh, I probably do. I'm just not aware of them because we didn't talk about it. Uh -huh. Okay, let's go back to Fantasia. The big thing, Fantasia was made in the 30s. Big thing in the 60s, came back to the theaters, and you would go on drugs. Did you have that experience too? Sometimes, yeah. Okay, and then you're saying even though looking inward and California is really a inside-seeking uh, state. You I never, didn't do that. You never went to the psychiatrist, never. I went to a psychiatrist once because... The left side of my body hurt, and I went to heart people. No, your heart's hurt. I went to uh, muscle people. No, maybe it's psychosomatic. Go to a psychiatrist. Not okay. I don't do psychosomatic. That's corny. But I went anyway. I'll do what I'm told occasionally. So I went to the head of UC Parnassus, and I did four sessions with him. And he said, "Is that your purse?" He's looking down. I put it on the floor. I said, "Yeah." He said, it's awfully big. And he got up, walked over, and lifted it up. He said, are you right-handed? I said, yeah. He said, so you wear this on your left shoulder? And I said, yeah. He said, why do you have so much stuff? I said, well, maybe I want to go to France tomorrow. So I got my passport, a toothbrush, underpants. He said, well, I tell you what. Either unload the purse or start wearing it on the right side for a while. <laughs> sure enough, he's right. That's funny. You have to go to a psychiatrist for that, for real practical advice. Yeah, because they couldn't figure out what was wrong. It kept hurting, <laughs> and they didn't know. So that's uh, that's the only... Uh, okay, but if we were here alone till midnight, just the two of us, would you be plumbing your inner depths, or would we be more talking external stuff? Oh, sometimes it depends on you. In other words, if you... I'll talk about anything except physics, because I don't know anything about physics. I didn't even take physics in high school. Man, after chemistry, yeah. forget it. Yeah, I, I didn't like algebra. I love geometry, because that's spatial, but uh, I don't like algebra. And I told the algebra teacher, uh, he said, why are you looking out the window? I said, because I don't add uh, letters. I add numbers. And he said, well, but you have to pass the course. I said, in California, public school... If you show up, you get a D. You can't flunk if, as long as you show up. So I showed up. It's <laughs> the only D I ever got. I liked everything else, uh, but I didn't like algebra. And I said, not only that, sir, but I'm never going to have to use algebra. And I never have. Because I knew myself well enough at that time to know that's one area I'm not going into. No, thanks. Okay. So... Joe Walsh says the challenge isn't is to live, not to die young. There's this 27 club. A lot of rock stars die for whatever reason, especially drugs. You've lived through it. And since it's totally available on Wikipedia, you're going to be 80 in the fall. Yeah. Okay. How do you feel about getting older? I'm not really fond of it. But the only, the only thing that's good that happens, unless your brains are fried – is uh, you acquire some wisdom, and you aren't quite as frantic about everything. You realize that there are very few things that are that important. Just relax. 
because, uh, you know, it, for one thing, I don't have much longer. If you're 80, you don't have a whole hell of a lot of time. So uh, just relax and enjoy whatever you got left. You know, there was that movie, The Bucket List, which actually I did not see. But at this stage of your life, is there anything you feel you have to or want to do before you pass? No, it's all uh, already gone. In other words, uh, I didn't learn how to ride a horse, but now every bone in my body would break if I tried to learn how to ride a horse. I never did Jimi Hendrix and uh, Peter O'Toole. But, see, they're both dead, so yeah, I can't do them anyway. So right. everything I have on a bucket list is not available. How, lo- how old were you when you first lost your virginity? 17. 17. So yeah. you were not – were you the bad girl growing up or were you sort of a straight arrow? I was bad-ish, but I didn't get in a lot of trouble. Uh, my friend – my best friend and I used to, I went to a private school, Castilea, in uh, Palo Alto for my junior and senior year. And uh, we used to – the girls had talked about, oh, who are you going out with this weekend? And Pam and I would say, uh, oh, Gordon Gilby. My parents drank Gordon's gin. Her parents drank Gilby's gin. So she and I would go out and get to screw it up together. <laughs> but we made it home, and we didn't get arrested. I didn't start getting arrested until I was 25, 26, something like that. Okay. Looking at you right now, it does not appear you've any had any cosmetic surgery. Okay. No, I did about 30 years ago, but you've got to keep it up. It doesn't stay. You've got to keep it up once every couple of years. What did you have done? Um, Eyelids. Yeah, the eyelids, you have to, I've been told, I'm going to have to have the eyelids because they droop and you can't have any peripheral vision. Yeah. So that's necessary. What else did you have? Eyelids and uh, pulled up face stuff here. It goes around the ears and you can see a scar in the back of my head where they did it. But that's like 35 or 40 years ago. So it's a little bit more crude than it is now. Okay. Are you happy you did it? Irrelevant? Sure. Because I kept on for another 10 years uh, in the 80s doing, uh, I was uh, around 40 at the time, which means around 1980. Right. And so I had another 10 years of being on a stage and not looking like a, a drooping slob. But after that, I stopped when I was about 50. So after that, there's no point in it. It's expensive, and I wasn't on a stage. I don't need to look like anything. Okay, so at this stage of your life, do you have a love life? you have a significant other? Are you playing no, in the field? No, for some reason uh, – the, and I used to be a real horn dog, but now it, it went away about 10 years ago. And I don't know if it's hormones. I don't know if it's uh, other medical things that I have. One is erythromyalgia, which is very rare. What is and that? It is if my feet get over about 50, uh, 62 degrees Fahrenheit, feels like somebody poured boiling water into mm. it. But it's so rare they don't study it because it's called uh, they wouldn't make any money off it. Right. So they don't know what causes it. They don't know how to cure it. It's not people who smoke. It's not people who don't smoke. It's not people who drink. It's not young. It's not old. It's all over the map demographically. So they don't know anything about it. So I have two pots that I keep on either side of the chair where I sit and paint. And about four times a day, pull the pots out, put ice in the pots, put my feet in the pots. And does that solve the problem? Yes, it does. And any other health problems? Yeah, heart. I've had two heart stents. I have uh, type 2 diabetes. 
uh, I had high blood pressure. I think it's gone down a little bit. But I'm a mess of stuff. I've got really good doctors, though. Uh, so they keep throwing medication at it and then pulling this one out for a period of time and then putting that. So I'm a uh, pile of non-fun drugs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you do still... Uh, partake of drugs that uh, might change your viewpoint, shall we say? No, uh, because uh, people have often said, let's say your drug of choice is speed. So they say, well, I'm not doing any speed anymore, but I, I do uh, drink. Uh, my opinion, and it's only my opinion, and AA's opinion, is that you can do some other drug that was not your drug of choice for a certain period of time. Eventually, you're going to wind yourself back to whatever was your drug of choice. So I don't do any so-called fun drugs at all. When did you stop? 23 years ago. Okay. And do you, you went to AA? Yeah. And do you still go to meetings or not? Yeah. Okay. You're not supposed to be talking about it, though, and neither am I. No, but I can talk about it. You can't talk yeah, about it, right? Yeah, but uh, – uh, People Magazine broke my anonymity about 40 years ago anyway, so right. it doesn't matter. Well, it's just that you brought up the program. Otherwise, I wouldn't have brought yeah, it up. No, either uh, – like I've had my anonymity broken, but I don't care because either you want to get sober or you don't. Well, what motivated you to get sober? Uh, the look on my daughter's face and uh, I thought I can't keep punishing my body this way. I'm too – I'm getting too old for this. Like Danny Glover said, I'm getting too old for this shit. Right. And uh, that's pretty much it. Like if I were to get as loaded as I did a long time ago, I'd probably kill myself in one night because I'm too old. And your drug of choice was alcohol. Yeah. Now, both my sponsor in AA, whom I've had for a long time, and I said, if Roar, which is a company, German. Right. Did they make sopers, whatever? If they make quaaludes again, right. 714s, and they've been in a dark bottle in an icebox somewhere, unopened, say for 30 years. I, I did this just to be funny with my sponsor. I said, uh, what would you do? She said, I'd ask you to share on <laughs> <laughs> You know, this comes up. Everybody was in the early 70s. Howard Stern was talking about that. Man, sopers, they thought, you know, quaaludes were the best drug. So uh, at this point in time, you more, I know that you go on the road with your art. We'll talk about your art later. Not anymore. Can't do it because my feet. Okay. So when did you stop? Uh, five, six years ago, something like that. Okay. So were you more of a homebody or? Oh, yeah. I don't go anywhere. The only place I go is to a grocery store because it's cold. You know, they keep them cold to keep right. the food fresh. So my feet don't mind a grocery store. My feet don't mind a car because there is a little thing on the air conditioning that points right. to the feet. So if there's a foot situation, I'm good. But most places don't have that. Once every six months, I'll go to an actual movie. And it's something that usually draws my attention so heavily that uh, it doesn't uh, – my feet uh, – I know they're hurting – but if your attention is drawn away enough, then it's okay. So how long ago did the foot thing start to happen? When I was about 53. Really? And how long I did it take to diagnose I, mo I moved down here from San Francisco. And at first I thought it was, oh, I guess I'm just – because it only happened maybe once every two weeks for a short period of time. 
and I went to podiatrists, I went to uh, oriental stuff, and nobody could figure out what it was because it's so rare. But a friend of mine's brother is a doctor, and he found it on 1100 of some obscure medical book. And he called me up from, he lives in Ohio, I think, or somewhere, called me up and said, how does this sound? And he read the uh, indications, what happens uh, with this thing, and I said, that's it. What's the name of it? He said, erythromyalgia. I said, oh, yeah, right, whatever. <laughs> but that's what it is. And then you go to doctors about it looking for answers? Yeah, but they don't have any because right, nobody studies it. Okay, so you're a homebody. Are you tend to be alone or people stop by or what? Well, I have friends and my ex-husband stays here for a couple of weeks every month or so. And oh, this is Skip? Yeah. Okay, so you're still friendly with him. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's my good bunny, and boy, he came here after the fire uh, and just went around fixing everything. I mean, he pulled up floors and put in, went to Home Depot and put in new floors. He'd uh, go over the paint. There'd be a crack in the wall, and he'd go over with this white stuff that you do before you paint, and then he'd paint it. And he'd climb up on roofs and do stuff. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And I thought, What does he do when he's not here? He's a production guy. He, okay, so uh, he's in L.A.? No, he lives in New Hope, Pennsylvania. Okay, oh, production, road production, and Lidditz and everything where all the companies are. He does uh, uh, all kinds of stuff. It can be rock and roll or he's doing, I think the next thing is Rick Wakeman, uh, who is both a musician and a comedian, which sounds hard to do, but apparently he pulls it off. And he's done Bette Midler, and he's done Us, and he's done The Who, and he's done Kiss, and he's done all kinds of stuff. So he started cleaning toilets in at the Spectrum in Philadelphia right. and worked his way up to being a lighting guy and then worked his way up to being a production. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. So your father did what for a living? Investment banker. And you today, an investment banker, makes tons of money. Back then... It was upper middle class. What was it Upper like? middle class, yeah. He didn't make tons. Right. But he made enough, and I've had more or less the same amount of money because I made about the same amount he did. So I've been on uh, kind of the same path. Same status. Except for when I first got married to Jerry Slick. He was going to San Francisco State, and I was modeling at iMagnets in San Francisco. So with two people uh, in an apartment and uh, – I'd take a car to the train station, train station into San Francisco, a uh, bus to iMagnons, and then do the reverse back home at night. And we lived in a house. Uh, I remember we were there when uh, Kennedy was killed. Uh, it was $90 a month for a house wow. in Potrero Hill. <laughs> <laughs> so you see how old I am. <laughs> right. It's been a while. Okay, um, today, do you have enough money today? Yes. Okay. I'm not rolling around in money, but I'm I'm good. And is that primarily from music or from art or whatever? Uh, music, yeah, definitely from music. And stuff you and, saved or there's still any royalties coming and in? And investments because both my accountant and my ex-husband uh, manage whatever money uh, is coming through to me. And is there any income left from music? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. And then Jefferson Airplane had this famous battle 
with your t- manager, Matthew Cates. Okay. <laughs> now, it ends up being a big legal case, and I'm a lawyer in a previous lifetime, uh, having to do with whether you can be both the manager and the agent, getting digs, whatever. In the middle of that, because supposedly he held all the money, what was your perspective? Uh, I wasn't with the band when he was the manager. So this was before when you were before, still with Great Society. I was Society. with Great Society, and I went to a party, and they said, uh, oh, look, there's our new manager, airplane guys. And I looked across the room. He's signaling what he is. He had on black cape with red lining. <laughs> I said, you're kidding me. Come on. And sure enough, he, he uh, screwed him over. And But it's... I was only involved after I joined the band because Paul Kantner right. was uh, with Matthew Cates because of the uh, situation with Airplane. But Paul was very generous with publishing. So if you gave him one word, he would put you in publishing. Oh. But then you're also Tied on Matthew Cates' list. So it was uh, tricky for years. It may still be going on. I have no idea. I think it finally ended. It certainly (laughs) went on for decades. It was crazy. Okay, so your father was an investment banker, and you first start growing up where? Uh, Let's see. I was born in Chicago, came out to L.A. when I was three, lived here for a year, moved to San Francisco, lived there for about seven years, moved to Palo Alto, lived there for another seven years, uh, went to college in New York for a year, then the next year went to college in uh, Miami and Florida, then came back to San Francisco, and it's it was starting to happen. Okay, let's go back to when you're, you know, you're living in San Francisco, you're going to school. Were you a popular girl in school? Oh, I don't know. It was a grammar school. We didn't have like, Well, I mean high school. Once you hit high school. Oh, high school. Uh, more or less, yeah, but I am very, uh, very sarcastic. So I got kicked out of the gang. There was a gang of girls that were the popular girls, and I was sort of in that. But I'm number two. Number one was, of course, and she's still a friend of mine, blonde, big boobs. I had dark, kinky hair and no boobs and short legs. Otherwise, I was great. Uh, but I got kicked out for being sarcastic, and uh, they—they—that's reasonable. Okay, you know? so you were always going your own way. Well, I don't know if I was going my own way because I liked uh, hanging out with people, uh, but I have a difficult personality, and if you pour alcohol on it, it's really difficult. Okay, so when did you start pouring alcohol on it? Well, about fifteen. Okay. And you know this about yourself. Did you have your ins- this insight back then or only as a result of hindsight? No, it's pretty much hindsight because uh, we just thought, oh, boy, we're getting away with it. And isn't this fun? And it was fun for a long time. You usually don't repeat stuff that isn't fun the first time around. I, oddly enough, Paul Kantner uh, never drank when I lived with him. And I said, why don't you drink? He said, well, I tried it in high school. It made me throw up. I said, oh, yeah, it made me throw up too. <laughs> <laughs> who, who cares? But he eventually got into alcohol. Unfortunately, that's what took him out. But, uh, it, you know, it's, it, everybody has a different storyline and different reasons for why they do or don't do whatever it is they're doing. Or there's no reason. It's just fun. 
Okay, so you're in high school. How does your father or your parents decide to send you from the public to the private high school? That was my idea because my friend, uh, Judy Levitas, was uh, going to Castellano, which is private. And I was in public school, Palo Alto High School. So I thought that'd be fun to go over there because a couple of my friends were in private school. So I went and asked How was it different from public school? Well, you wear uniforms and uh, there are no boys which for learning is probably better. So you graduate from high school. Did you want to go to college or that's just what you did? How did you end up going to college? And I think uh, I was influenced by the times. Everybody, you go to college. That's what you do, you know. So I went to probably the easiest college in the world. It's a dipshit college in New York that teaches you how to go out with Princeton boys, which fork to use, uh, speech classes. <laughs> Trisha Nixon went there. Of course. That's a well-known story. Yeah. And so, did you know her there? No. She's 10 years younger than I am. Okay. But now, uh, go she, on. She, um, when she got to the White House with her father, she decided to have a tea and invite all the alumni. It's a real small school, so you can do that of Finch College. My name was Grace Wing at the time. That's my maiden name. So she didn't know. You know, if it said Grace Slick, maybe they would have thought twice. But so I got an invitation and I went, oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> so I had uh, about 600, 700 mics of acid in my pocket and a very long pinky fingernail for cocaine. Dip that into a little thing. So I figured uh, I'm an entertainer and we gesture a lot. And I knew about tees because I'd been taught about tees at Finch. You stand. You don't sit at a tee. You stand. There are two urns on either side of a long table. That's the way they kind of always are. And you stand with your cup and you talk to whoever you're talking to. I'm deciding that I'm talking to Richard Nixon and the stuff is tasteless, but I get a little bit of it in my fingernail out of my pocket, and just ge I'm gesturing, I'm talking over his cup, and he'd be loaded in 45 minutes or a half an hour. Just the idea of him on acid. But what I learned later on was that the guy was nuts anyway. He'd go around talking to the right. pictures, you know, so we didn't have to do that. <laughs> but uh, we were standing in line ready to go in, and there's security. On the way in, I took Abby Hoffman as my so-called husband or partner. You know, you can bring right. somebody, bring one person. And we dressed Abby Hoffman up so he wouldn't, you know, he looked like a mob boss uh, in a suit because he had the black hair, black eyelashes. And they came up and told me, they said, I'm sorry, you can't go in. You're a security risk. And I said, what? I said, I've got an invitation. Yes, but we know who you are, and you're a security risk. They didn't say anything to Abby. <laughs> Not one word. And I thought, I'm just a rock and roll singer. You know, I didn't say it, but I want to say, you know who this is? <laughs> and so they wouldn't let me in. But well, it's just as well, because that's rude to dose people. I've been dosed, and it's, you know, acid's good if you know what you're taking, but uh, being dosed is not all that uh, marvelous. However, being the president of the White House in the era, 
you know, what was going on in the country. It yeah. wasn't like today, although I was in your bathroom and I did see the Trump toilet paper, which I very much yeah. appreciated. Oh, it would be fun to dose him. Oh, Lord. <laughs> God, that'd be fun if I could stay around and watch. <laughs> okay. So you so Finch sounds like a finishing school. It is. And if you'd... How long is Rome? Could you have gone for four years if you wanted to? Yeah. But you then, how did you decide to leave there? I went with a friend of mine from Finch. Uh, on the Easter vacation, we went to Nassau. And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. So University of Miami is real close to Nassau. So next year I went to the University of Miami. I'm a screw off. I'm not this big academic. I just went because you're supposed to go to college. And why not? It was fun. Right. So, and so then after University of Miami, you went to another college, right? No. Uh, then I went I went home to in the summer to San Francisco. But San Francisco was starting to have all this stuff happening. And I thought, this is way better. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay, so you never graduated from college. No. And your daughter, did you care if she went to college? No, she can do whatever she wants. Okay. Now, she was famously on TV at age 16 on MTV. Yeah. You think that was a good or a bad thing? 
I think it was good. I just wish she had kept at, you have to maintain uh, stuff in jobs, whether you're a dentist or you work at a grocery store or you're rock and roll, to stop working and then try to pick it up later and then stop work. You can't do that. You have to maintain. So if she had maintained, she got uh, a job on the number one show at the time, which is Home Improvement. So, but she said she couldn't um, really handle it because it was too much stress and stuff like that. And to be an actor or actress, you really do have to be dedicated. She said, I'm not dedicated enough. Okay. So you moved back, to, if you can remember, what year do you move back to San Francisco? Do uh, you mean from college? Yes. That would be 1959 okay. or 60. Now – I'm younger than you, and I remember the 60s. Everybody is. <laughs> Not everybody, but a lot of people. I remember the 60s being explosive. What were the 50s like? Uh, Leave it to Beaver. So it was really like that? Yeah. Eisenhower, Leave it to Beaver. And uh, a lot of us, uh, people my age, went to a certain amount of school, either two or four years of college, usually. And if you read... You read, say, about turn of the century in Paris, Alice B. Toklas, uh, Dagalev, the dancer, Picasso, all those people turned the art world on its head. And they were sitting around uh, having uh, pot brownies that Alice would make. They were accepting of her being a lesbian with uh, Gertrude Stein. And we read about that. Did that look like way better than Leave it to Beaver? Of course it did. <laughs> so that made a lot of us uh, open up and very liberal, which I am to this day. The Republican Party has a list of people, where they live, and how much money they make. So they <laughs> have for years called here or written here, and I just laugh. I said, look, I am a socialist Democrat. So you're calling the wrong person. <laughs> and I've been that for uh, since I was about 22 or three, maybe. Okay, so who's your candidate in the election on the Democratic side? Well, my friend and I kind of argue about this because, and I think she may be right. She said, the deal is to beat Trump. Of course. And she said uh, Biden is the only one who can do that. But I like um, Biden's – now, I shouldn't say this because he's probably younger than I am, but he's old. Like he was – he's been stumped a couple of times. He doesn't have that fast reaction. I like uh, Kamala Harris. She's from California. She's real sharp. She knows how to come back, and she will come back at you. Buttigieg, amazing mind, Rhodes Scholar, done military time. The guy's amazing, and Warren's got good plans. So all three of them, but in order to beat uh, Trump, it might have to be Biden because people like who they're familiar with. How about Bernie? And uh, Bernie, I think he's too far left for most people. How about for you? No, he's not too far left for me. Okay, let's go back to the 60s. So you go back in 59 to San Francisco. 
Is it palpable? I didn't. I was living on the East Coast where it's uptight. It was palpable. Something was going on. No, uh, not in '59. The shift was going between beatnik and hippie. Right now, I hate to use those. They're kind of silly words. No, but it, for but those of us who energy Krebs to yeah, whatever, they do describe a certain uh, way of thinking or milieu or whatever you want to call it. So it's shifting from uh, the beatnik thing up at North Beach to hippies, and the, it was you could tell that things were kind of shifting. It wasn't there yet, but you could tell. You could feel it. And so you, I, you go back to Bay Area and you're doing what every day? Uh, I'm a model because I have no uh, skills. Okay. How do you feel as someone who's intelligent and outspoken being paid for your looks? I thought it was very strange because I have short legs, kinky dark hair, and no tits. Now, no tits is good for a model, but short legs and kinky dark hair is not good. Uh, so I would straighten my hair by wrapping it around my head after I washed it. That's a big roller, which will straighten out your hair without ruining it. A lot of people iron their hair. That's stupid. You ruin your hair. Uh, and the long legs at the time that I was modeling, uh, skirts came down below the knee anyway, so nobody knew how short my lower legs were. Right. The only thing they didn't like about me was uh, that it's, I have a big head, apparently, and it was very hard to get hats. What happens is when you are going on a runway, you come up to just before you're about ready to go on, they give you gloves and hat and jewelry. And they give me the gloves, fine, hat, uh, no good. Couldn't get the hat on my head because my head's too big. But they were fairly nice about everything. I worked for uh, Madame Moon, who was... <laughs> Couturier department at iMagnons. Sounds like Madame Rue from Love Potion number she nine. She was actually French. <laughs> and uh, she. the only reason she liked me is because I can look French because of the dark hair and pointy face and all that kind of stuff. Now, in those days, modeling wasn't lucrative, correct? Well, it's not lucrative for a person who's only 5'7". Right. But it worked for floor modeling, which is what I was doing. What I had to do was change my clothes every 10 minutes, and I was working in the couturier department, so I had some beautiful stuff to wear. But you change your clothes every 10 minutes, you wander around, and all these old, fat, rich ladies who look like I do now would come up and feel the material and, you know, do that. And that's what you do all day. Really? Did you end up with any of those clothes? Oh, no. They were like $10,000 a suit. Are you kidding? Well, I was wondering maybe you stole them or something. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how do you meet Jerry Slick? Jerry Slick, uh, his mother was my mother's best friend. And it's very 50s if you look at it uh, sideways. And I do like Jerry Slick. He's very bright and he's funny. And uh, I've known him, God damn, since I was about... 10, 11, Oh, really? 12. We didn't go together. Right. He went with my friend Asia. Uh, her name was Darlene at the time. She changed it to Asia. Um, he went with her for a while. Uh, but I didn't I didn't go out with him until I was older. How old were you when you first started to go out with him? 20. Okay. So you say you lost your virginity at 17. Yeah. Was that to a boyfriend or you just wanted to lose your virginity? No, Dave Hunter. He was my boyfriend. 
And uh, I ran into him about 30 years later. He was selling furniture at a department store. <laughs> and I looked at him and I thought, God, he looks familiar. Dave? Yeah, it's me, Dave. Okay, so before you meet Jerry, before you start up with Jerry, yeah. had you played the field? Uh, I don't know if we, yeah, I guess maybe we called it that. I don't know. Uh, let's see, before Jerry, I was going out with uh, Stanford boys because I was at Castellea. So uh, I would go out with the Delta Cap Absalon. My father was in that fraternity, and I thought, well, that's a good idea. They're also big drinkers. So am I. So You were a big drinker at that age. Well, are you 17, yeah. Well, I started I mean, at, at 15, but not on a regular basis. Uh, well, then, I went to college in the hinterlands in Vermont in the old days, you know, before the internet, et cetera. And you end up drinking a lot. Not that yeah. drinking was taboo in my life because my father owned a liquor store. But I got to the point where I didn't drink every night. But if you wanted to have the best night of your life, call me. Okay. <laughs> and I tried, but then you realize, you know, the best night of your life is rare. <laughs> you know, and you're, you know, getting drunk. I ended up getting, you know, I won't tell the story of how, uh, I ended up giving up drinking. That's for another time. But, okay, with these boys, you said earlier you were a horn dog. Is there sex with these uh, fraternity boys? Uh, let's see. Not, no, because I didn't lose my virginity until I was 17, and that was graduation night. Graduation night? Yeah. And that was not a Stanford boy. It was, that was that, da Dave Hunter. Right. The furniture salesman. Was that a good experience? I don't know, because I blacked out. <laughs> They probably call that rape today. Both, both me and my friend who was in the next bedroom with her date. Right. But both of us lost the same night, and we both in the morning looked at each other and went, uh, because <laughs> we couldn't remember. Now that's what drinking will do for you. Your first time supposed to be magical and everything. Can't remember. <laughs> okay. So when you meet Jerry, had you had sex with a lot of guys before that? Uh, no, not really. Okay, so you meet Jerry. How do you decide to marry Jerry? Uh, I don't know. We just start going out, and it seemed like a natural thing to do. And it's also very, there's a 50s hangover in it. Right. In that, oh, his mother's my mother's best friend. We both come from Palo Alto. We're both the same age. We both, so there's, there's a little hangover of the Okay, 50s. but you're a very atypical woman, and it seems like you're atypical from day one. No. You were not? No. I'm pretty standard up to about age 23, 24, 24, 25, I start getting weird. Okay, before you get weird, when you marry Jerry, do you think it's going to be forever? I assume so, yeah. I, t I got married in the uh, uh, a big cathedral in San Francisco called Grace Cathedral which I told my parents when I was four. I said, I'm going to get married there. And I did, because I'm stubborn. And uh, <laughs> uh, but So it was, you can see from this, I, it, I'm pretty standard for a long time. Let's clean up the thing for one second. You have siblings? Yes, I have a brother. And brother older or younger? Younger, nine where, years. Where's he today? He lives in a park in a sleeping bag, and has, for as long as I can remember, he's paranoid, schizophrenic, and slightly retarded. And he's very sweet. He doesn't hurt anybody. He lives 
right next to the police station because he's paranoid, but that's a perfect place for somebody like him to live because nobody will hassle him. And he is one of the town uh, eccentrics. You know, the, they, every town has him, lives in Palo Alto. And because he's uh, paranoid, he won't leave Palo Alto. Now, was he ever institutionalized? Only once, about 40 years ago, he pushed a girl off her bicycle, and they said, why? And they said, because the wheels were talking to me. Then he went to a mental institution for, I don't know, six months. But he's never been in a hospital. Is either, he on medication? Either No, because he uh, doesn't carry a card. He doesn't know where, and if you tell him, he forgets it where the so, uh, SSI is to collect money. So my parents left a trust for him, which lasted up till about five, ten years ago. Now I'm uh, supporting him. And I send him actual money because he can't cash a check because he can't prove who he is. Well, how do you get the money to him? I send it in uh, uh, envelopes. Actual, mean, oh, so he, he can go to the post office. I have a post office box in Palo Alto. Because obviously he can't get one. Uh, I have one. I send it to myself. And then uh, he gets some money that way. And how long has he been homeless? He has been. Uh, Skip and I, my ex-husband, Skip and I tried to get him an apartment a couple times. But he makes him kind of crazy because it's too claustrophobic for him. So he'd prefer to sleep outside. He's not doing it because he, there's no money. He just doesn't like being indoors. So when he's awake, what is he doing all day? I don't know. I guess he wanders around, you know, and looks at stuff. And uh, he eats because he has enough money to eat and uh, goes to movies, I imagine. I don't know. And was this heartbreak for your parents? Well, yeah, I think so. Uh, because he was kind of, he would be occasionally verbally kind of violent with them. He's never done it with me, but, uh, it's unpleasant and it's sad to have a kid who's screwed up and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Okay. So 24, 25, you start to get weird. What does that look like? I will take whatever drugs I want. I will have sex with whoever I want. I will stop working as a model and form a rock and roll band with Jerry Slick and Darby Slick and a couple other guys. Uh, okay. I, so Jerry, he graduates from school. What do you, once you quit modeling, what are you doing for money? Uh, then we started uh, a rock and roll band called Great Society, and that progressively made more money. Oh, it did? Yes, so pro that progressively. Okay, not but, okay. not a monster amount, but more money. And uh, Jerry Slick is, I think, still a cinematographer. That's what he was going to San Francisco State for. So you have no contact with him? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I talk to him. Okay. So you start the band in what year? Good question. 65, 4, 5. Okay. Now, what does Jerry think about you sleeping with whomever you want and taking whatever drugs you want? I'm not sure how aware he was of it because uh, I didn't flaunt this stuff in front of him. But uh, he played drums in the Great Society. 
his brother played guitar. And then we had other friends, David Miner and uh, Dutch name, Van something or other. Anyway, uh, we made some money with that band. And then the, oddly enough, dark-haired Norse, which is what I am, Norwegian, Swedish, uh, the, and so is she, Signe Anderson. Well, before we get there, okay. okay, never mind. So how did you decide to be a musician, to be a singer? Because I went to see Jefferson Airplane play at a uh, night cl small club called The Matrix, and I looked up and I said, that looks like more fun than modeling. My mother was a singer. I can do that. Because you're young and stupid, you know, you figure, yeah. Okay, okay. It's kind of like the late 70s, early 80s in Los Angeles. Now, at that time in 1975, you talk about in the 50s hangover, you get married, etc. It's not because they talk 67 is the summer of love. What is going on in San Francisco? And when does it start to change? I'd say around 64-ish. I, I wouldn't want to bet on it, right. but I, I think it's around 64-ish uh, because probably of Beatles and some folk guys. Uh, it was called uh, Jefferson Airplane before I was in it. It was called folk rock, and it was still some folk rock, but uh, it got a little harder. It got into hard rock, but uh, people started forming bands because it looked like more fun than what they were doing at the time. Well, for those people who didn't do that, the hate Ashbury, et cetera, were mm -hmm. you aware of that whole scene? Oh, yeah. And uh, some people were making clothes, for instance. Some people were uh, making music. Some people were having uh, medical, you set up medical thing, help for people with no money. Some people were making newspapers, the Oracle. Some people were getting into politics as much as they could. You know, it, it, everybody was doing stuff. Now, there was a guy named Emmett Grogan. Did you know him? I met Emmett, but no, I didn't know him. Okay, he wrote a famous book called Ringolivio, where he talked about he he had a free kitchen, but he actually stole all the food. <laughs> it was interesting. Okay, that all happened. So you're with Great Society. Great Society makes a record, right? An sort album. of, yeah. Who pays for that? <sighs> Let's see. I think it was offered. Uh, Big Daddy Tom Donahue, was right? The a DJ. DJ. Uh, heard us, and he offered, he had uh, Sun Studios, uh, I think that was the name of it, um, and he got Sly Stone to come and help us. Now, <laughs> we were really pretty lame musicians. I mean, what we did was, Jerry had a set of drums, so you're the drummer. Right. You have a guitar, so you're the guitar, you know, and... Uh, but Sly Stone can play any instrument you hand him well. So he helped us. And at one point, he just stopped the thing and said, look, I'll do this. And he went around <laughs> played all the thing. Now, he can't sing because it, if he sang and they said, that's Grace Slick. So I, had, I did sing, but uh, it was never a record until after... White Rabbit and Somebody to Love came out, and we got pretty famous. Okay. And uh, then, they, then they went back and researched, you know, can we— Okay, with Sly Stone, because now he seems like, you know, off off the grid mentally. 
Was he on it then? He's on. He was right here. Okay. So, so now you're saying you're in the Great Society and you hear about Signy. Yeah. Uh, the bass player, who that's one of the things I liked the most about Airplane is Jack Cassidy's bass playing. He was a lead guitar player before. So the way he played bass wasn't just doon, doon, doon. It was all over the place and this sustained notes that were just beautiful. He came up and asked if I wanted to join the band. Uh, two of the members of Great Society were going to India because it was popular at the time, study sitar. And his lead singer, Signe Anderson, was going to Oregon to have babies and be married. Do you want to join the band? Oh, yes, I do. Now, doesn't this leave Jerry out? Yeah, but Jerry's going to film school. He's not a, like, guy who's sitting around saying, all I want to do is play the drums. Okay. He's more of a cinematographer. But you're still together then? Yes. Okay. So you go to the airplane and famously you bring somebody to love in White Rabbit. Mm -hmm. How developed were those successful songs for the Great Society when you played live? Were those your key songs? Uh... I guess so. We had uh, we wrote our own songs. I think the only thing I did that was somebody else's was uh, Sally Go Around the Roses. Uh, I don't know. But I wrote songs. Father Bruce was about Lenny Bruce. Uh, okay. Was there a dream to become internationally famous or you just no. play music? I was just doing it because it was fun and I could. Right. You know, it's the same reason people climb efforts, because I can. Okay. So you join the airplane, which already has a record contract, and it has already, has already put an album out. Yes. And you immediately start to gig with them, right? Yeah. And then when does it come up with the idea to make an album with you and the band? About two minutes, uh, because we had played, uh, and it took, the album only took a couple of weeks. Uh, surrealistic pillow because we'd played all those songs live so it wasn't hard to get them right we'd already done it uh, well, who's the producer of that record rick d starts with a d okay i don't remember off the top but of he head. didn't really do he was kind of just in the room yeah uh um schmidt did, did al schmidt al schmidt did most of the production because the director or producer, whatever you call him, God love him, was mostly uh, having some alcohol. And uh, Okay, so now you're working, you're working for your RCA Records, which yes. is not known as a strong label, but how controlling of, they, of you were they? They were fantastic with freedom, artistic freedom. They're not so good with uh, promotion. Right, right. I kept badgering them. I said, you, you've got to put this in People magazine. Oh, we have a full page in, in uh, Billboard. I said, Everybody in Billboard gets the album for, for what Billboard? Who right. cares? You know, so, so you got a bedroom. Okay, so you were involved. But artistic in the freedom. You, you were involved in marketing and business from day one. Mm -mm. Just the stuff I was aware of. Okay, so you make the album. Are you aware when it's done before it's released that it's going to be a legendary smash? No. We thought it'd do okay, but no, had no idea. Okay, and then when <coughs> when did you realize something was starting to happen? I think we went on the road. We would have been paying more attention to that than uh, 
record sales. I can't remember. Well, I mean, you heard your song on the radio. That must have been a thrill. Everybody said it was a thrill. No, I can't remember the first time I heard it, but I can remember hearing uh, the Beach Boys, She's Giving Me Good Vibrate. Right. That was a stunning piece of work. That's an amazing song. I remember where I was. I was on Sunset. I was headed west, and I was just stopped me in my tracks. But I can't remember where I was when I heard my own song. Okay, but overnight, you become, along maybe with Janis Joplin, but she was you, know, you were considered beautiful, and that was her beauty was not something that translated to the world at large. What was it like to become an overnight icon? I didn't really know I was an overnight icon. I was, I was a singer. I knew we were doing well, but it's a whole band. And there are a whole bunch of other bands doing well. It was a group, seemed like a group, huge group of people, more or less the same age, saying the same thing. Uh, and so I didn't single myself out of that large group. That's the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, uh, uh, Mamas and Papas, you know, all, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, uh, Janice, uh, you know, the, the British groups, the Kinks. All those, you know, from the outside, all those groups are happening. Yeah. But you're the most famous woman in rock and roll. You must go places and people say, you know, there must be opportunities. People must be coming on to you. That must happen relatively rapidly. No, the, the only person came on or, or did anything was David Anderley. He came up and he wanted to uh, take me out of airplane and do start doing solo stuff. And I know what that is. That's somebody else who wants to program my shit. No, thank you. I prefer being with people of like mind. And uh, I don't want to be a – I didn't want to be a solo – artist apart from marty you know i, I like the input jack and yorma blues marty sings love songs i'm kind of sarcastic political and paul is lets everybody go into the moon uh space guy so i like the fact that it was a smorgasbord and did everybody get along at that point at that point yeah but then as often happens in groups everything's well my stuff is better than your stuff or our stuff is all equal, but I want to go off and do my stuff. Uh, so that happens a lot. Was it driven by money at all? A lot of times people want not, their... Not really. No, it's driven by... Jack and Yorma are more blues-oriented, and they really hate all the publicity of posing and having... We did two weeks of nothing but publicity at one time in New York, and we were staying at the Chelsea, and uh, Yorma wrote a song called Third Week at the Chelsea. That is his uh, statement about this is stupid. We're not doing music. We're posing, you know. So they don't like that. Uh, Marty was okay with it. I think Marty at one point wanted to be more kind of Elvis Presley-ish type of deal. And uh, Paul likes the group arrangement too. He he enjoyed that. So he didn't want to split uh, split it up. And Jack and Yorma took off to go speed skating in, I think, Finland or somewhere. But we didn't know which country they were in. They were gone for a year. So Paul and I just started making music together. Okay, before we get to that, second album, uh, After Bathing at Baxter's. You yeah. had a number of radio successes on Surrealistic Pillow. 
Did you consciously try to make a radio success on that next record? No. We, we made what we wanted to make, and Port RCA was still paying for studio time, and it took, after being Baptists, because we hadn't practiced any of those, they were new songs, uh, it took us a long time to make it. And because the uh, instruments were, a lot of that electronic stuff was new coming out, so you test it out, and so let's see if this works, and well, no, we have to run it through uh, that board or something. So it took a while to make now, that. Now, San Francisco Sound, so to speak, you were the first act that made it. There isn't any San Francisco sound. I, I understand. This is what labeled by the society, uh, by the press. By San Francisco point, scene, but right. not sound. Right. So there's the dead, there's Quicksilver, there are other acts. Charlotte. Yeah, right. Yeah. Are you friends with all those people? Yeah. Okay. Ace of Cops. We didn't see them on a regular basis because we have to work. Right. And after the records came out, uh, Genesis, I think, and Big Brother and and our first record, then the the record company puts you on the road to sell the thing. So then I didn't see anybody because I was always on the road. Did you or, like? Did you like being on the road? Yeah, it's okay. My favorite part though is in, uh, creating a song in the studio. I love that. That's my favorite. But yeah, I, I'm okay on the road. And at the time, you were going by what kind of vehicle? Airplanes. Sometimes uh, when we first started, uh, it was cars. And that was the only time I've ever had penis envy. And it's because you didn't have to stop for a guy if he had to go to the bathroom. There's a lot of cars. <laughs> There's a lot of cars, you know, there's equipment in this car and two, three of us in that car and four. So the whole thing has to stop if I have to go to the bathroom because I can't just hang it out the window. <laughs> so I thought, damn, this is inconvenient. Um, <laughs> but yeah, cars, trucks, airplanes, buses, anything. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. 
Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. So when you would get to a town, because you'd gone to Finch and you had some sophistication, would you ever partake of the culture in the town? No, uh, because we didn't have enough time, really. Okay. The guys would sometimes, after a job, they'd go to a late-night club and play. But uh, that's mostly blues, and I'm not really a blues person because I prefer to sing about what I know and what I've lived rather than, and I may be negative about it, but I understand it. But for me to try and act like I'm black uh, seems stupid. Wait, wait. Let's stop on something you said. You said you may be negative. It sounds like you've gotten a lot of criticism in your life for being negative. Oh, no, no. This one I'm, I'm talking about, I may be negative on purpose about aspects of the 50s. Ah, I got it. I got yeah, it. So, uh, or something I don't like in the 60s and 70s. Some politician, some way of conducting yourself, some something. So my stuff is like... Um, Okay, sun cuts loose from the frozen till it joins with the African sea. In moving, it changes its cold and its name, and it doesn't mean shit to a tree. Eskimo Blue Day. And you're you're good. RCA let me do it. They were very good with artistic. Well, I remember that was one of the first records that, and ultimately MC5 that got censored, where there was actually profanity. Yeah. So and up against the wall, motherfucker. Yeah, that's Paul. Yeah, and he got away with that. The only time they, we were questioned was when Paul insinuated that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a thing going on, and the president of RCA at that time was Catholic. So they argued every day, and Paul had tapes of it. I don't know where those tapes are today, but Paul had tapes of them arguing back and forth. Uh, really. Uh, come on, you let me say uh, doesn't mean shit to a tree and up against the wall. And you're worried about whether he insinuated that. Come on. So that was the only time they've ever uh, stopped us. Okay. Now, what was it like being the only woman on the road amongst a group of guys? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, expand upon that a little I bit. I pretty much loved it. Because they're musicians, most of them are funny. So they're fun to be around. And uh, it's always good if you are walking around with uh, not only that, but you've got the crew and, you know, walking around a whole bunch of guys around you. You don't get accosted. Right. But to what degree, now you're famous, are people recognizing you and wanting something? It was, I cannot remember uh, it being really difficult. Now I'm sure 
uh, Taylor Swift or whoever has to have a whole bunch of goons around her. But uh, at the time, uh, we just, you handle it. And you learn to handle it. In other words, Janice knew how to handle it. If I was alone, I, d- I didn't like you. You knew about it. <laughs> okay. You decide to cut volunteers. Did you say to yourself, okay, we're going to make a big statement or we're just making another album? No, it's it's making another album, but we didn't get together as a group and say, okay, let's all say this. It still was... Yorma writes a certain amount of music. Paul writes a certain amount. I write a certain amount. Marty writes a certain amount. Jack didn't write. And didn't, Spencer didn't really write. So it was the four of us. Well, that we, album was seemed to speak to the uh, goings-on in the nation and preach some sort of action revolution or something like that. Yeah, because that's uh, our experience at that time. So we're talking about our own experience. Okay, so... Uh, Bill Graham, who became your manager for a period, he said that as soon as you the group got any money, they wanted to go back to the home and get stoned and wouldn't work again until they ran out of money or drugs. Is that an accurate representation? No. But I do like Bill Graham. And he's uh, he was not interested in uh, getting loaded. He was a little bit older uh, than we were, but he's a real good promoter. And... Uh, I think the the whole uh, San Francisco thing, I don't know about New York. Uh, that's uh, Velvet Underground and whatever. But I think he he didn't like it because it's not business-like and it doesn't get anything done, you know. <laughs> but no, we, we kept writing. I mean, we didn't stop. We didn't stop working or something. And stop. why did you let go, let Bill Graham go? Well, he had us playing at one point three different towns – in one day, you get on an airplane, you go, you play here. You get on an airplane, you go to the. I'm sorry, we didn't want to die. You know, <laughs> that's that's pushing it too much. Let's do it uh, normally, like you play maybe five jobs a week, and you take off one day in the middle of that, and then another day at end uh, of three days or something, so you can wash your clothes, so you can regroup. You don't push it like that, you know. So didn't he say he was willing to work with you and have you work less? No, he he uh, wants to push it. So we got, which was a mistake, because he's a sweet man, but not a businessman. Uh, a friend of Marty's who was a copy boy at the San Francisco Chronicle, and he was our uh, tour manager early on, uh, and he was promoted to manager. But boy, in in the music business, you've got to have a, a little shrewd going on in there, and a little bit of killer too. You got to, you know. And he was the guys at the record company loved him. Everybody loved him because he's fun to hang out with. This is Bill Thompson. Yeah, sweet man. Uh, just I can't say enough good stuff about him, except that he was in a position that he was not suited for. Okay, how did you all decide to live in one house? We didn't all live in one house. That was our office. That was your office. Occasionally, yeah, it's a five-story Victorian. Right. So occasionally, if somebody's having a fight with their girlfriend, they'd stay there or something. And Paul, I think, lived there for about six months. But we didn't all live in that house. Okay, so you're still living with Jerry? Well, uh, part of the time. <clears throat> then I started hanging out with and lived with Spencer Dryden. Okay, so what did Jerry say about that? 
I had gone. I just went on the road and never came back. One of the road trips, and I forget which one it was. And he didn't try to get you back? He wasn't unhappy? No, he, he probably thought, the hell with her, uh, for good reason. Uh, I think I got a letter in the mail uh, about six months after China was born, where I, when I was living in Bolinas, 1971, that said you were divorced. It was that easy. And neither he... Or Skip Johnson went for the 50-50 California law thing. Both very upstanding human beings. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Speaking to which, there's a lot of people in the airplane, six people, whatever. Was there enough money? To do what? Well, it kept the engine going, okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. But could you bank any money? Yes, and I did. My father is a conser was conservative, Republican investment banker. But I figure he knows more about banking than I do. So he said, I know you don't care about business and numbers and all that, but I'll tell you it's something that's easy. One-third, one-third, and one-third. One-third you save. One-third you pay all your bills. And the last third goes between having fun and maybe extra payments on something. He said, if you do that, you'll be okay. So I've done that. Over since Oak, yeah. So over 60, 70 years. So you end up playing Monterey. Oh, that was wonderful. Why was it wonderful? Because it was well planned. The weather was good. You could get to a toilet within about four minutes. Uh, all the acts were good. The audience was happy. The stuff that they sold on the uh, outer around the edge of the uh, where it was were all handmade stuff and uh the little newspapers, I mean, it was just, and we saw people that we'd never seen. We'd heard them. Like, I'd heard Jimi Hendrix on record. I'd heard The Who on record. I'd heard Ravi Shankar, but I'd never seen him. So we were just as awed as, like, uh, Mama Cass's face when she saw Janis Joplin is a real good example of what was going on there with the musicians and the audience. Just Wow. So you were sitting in attendance. It, you, know, you performed, but also you checked every act out. Oh, yeah. Okay. And did you realize acts like uh, Laura Nero and Hendrix and who would blow up after that? Uh, well, Hendrix, we knew, was right. going to go to the moon. And the who. Uh, Laura Nero, not so much. Uh, this is my opinion. Of course. Only, not anybody else's. And um, Ravi Shankar was already uh, a genius. So, uh, but yeah, we watched each other even when they weren't performing. Like Brian Jones was there right. backstage. And backstage the was Stones. fun. It was right. a lot of fun. So uh, the whole experience of that was fantastic. And Woodstock is the one that gets the most press, but Woodstock was a mess. Well, I think the problem was the Woodstock movie came out first, and the Bonnery pop movie film came after that, so it didn't really get the legend. So what was it like being at Woodstock? A mess. In other words, we couldn't see anybody because of the weather. We stayed in a motel, and half an hour before we're supposed to go on, a helicopter would come pick us up, drop us off backstage, you walk up the stairs, you go do your set, you walk back, the helicopter takes you back to the hotel and gets next, whatever their next deal is. But 
something went wrong with the equipment, so they took us up. We were supposed to play it around 9 o'clock at night. We were on stage, backstage, all night, and we played at 6 o'clock in the morning or 5.30. If you don't think rock and roll is weird at 5.30 in the morning. But uh, so, and the people in the audience, are half a million of them are wet. It's raining. You can't get to a bathroom for about a week. I mean, it was just, you could, we couldn't watch anybody. Where are you going to stand? So it, it was uh, not good. So it was just big, is all it was. Okay, so it wasn't a good experience from your viewpoint. No. Okay, then you also Jefferson Airplane played Altamont, and that was really not good. <laughs> you know that uh, we were playing, an uh, airplane was on, and uh, I didn't wear my contact lenses that day, and I can sort of see without them. And I saw, sort of saw this scuffling going on, and I thought that's Marty. What? And I went back to Spencer, and I said. The drummer, I said, what's going on with Marty? He said, the Hells Angels are beating him up. And I, oh, good. <laughs> so that started. Uh, and they punched him and he fell down on the stage floor. And the guy said, never say fuck you to a Hells Angel. So Marty says it again. <laughs> and the, our crew had to come and get the Hells Angel. And were you afraid at all? No, because I'm too stupid to be afraid. There's something about me that... All kinds of hideous things are going on, and I'm just kind of either observing it or being part of it. And I, I don't know. Later on, I look back and go, geez, what a fool. But at the time, I always think everything's going to turn out okay. I'm kind of dip, dipshit. Okay, about a year later, uh, you get the Blows Against the Empire <laughs> album. Yeah. How did that come together? Well, that's Paul's. But you were involved, right? Uh, yeah, I was involved, but <clears throat> so was Jack Cassidy, David Crosby, Graham Nash, you know, Jerry Garcia. Everybody was involved. But you And you were also involved on Sunfighter, right? Yeah. Okay, and at this point, do you think the band's ever going to come back together? I have no idea because we don't even know where Jack and Yorma are. We know they're in, in uh, one of the Scandinavian countries, but we don't, we don't know which one. They're speed skating. They were, and they come back together. You come back together with Bark. Do you think the band is going to, you know, go on? Or are you feeling while wow, we're on fumes at this point? Yeah, I it, Bark. You could tell. It, it, we didn't say anything publicly, but you could tell that uh, Bark is not quite as marvelous as it should be. And then Long John Silver. Yeah. I mean, that from a consumer point, I bought great packaging, but not a great record. No. Okay, so at this point, do you think you're done or in the back of your mind, you're morphing into Jefferson Starship with Paul? Well, it already, <clears throat> Paul and I had already done that kind of thing, so I wasn't worried about having a job. Uh, you know, I, I figured I could do that for another 10 years or something, so I wasn't really worried about that. I just thought it was too bad that uh, we sounded poorly. On those records. Okay. On which records? Bark, Long Time okay, Silver. The, okay, the Jefferson Airplane records. Yeah. Okay. So you say you're in the band, you have a relationship with a drummer, Spencer Dryden. Yeah. Then how do you end up being with Paul, who's been in with the band for years? Um, Spencer and I uh, split up, and Spencer started going with my friend um, Sally, 
who I'm still friends with. She lives in uh, Houston, Texas. That's where she's from. And so Spencer went with Sally, and I didn't go with anybody, but eventually Paul and I got together. I mean, and did you always want a child? Was it premeditated? No. I uh, just said, uh, we were in uh, the Sheraton, and I think in New York. I said to Paul, because he's so different from me, I thought that that would be interesting, both mentally and physically. He likes to run shit. I don't. I want you to do your job. I'll do my job. I don't want to tell you what to do. You don't tell me. You know. So, but he's just fine telling everybody what to do. And I thought, well, that's good. He's a good management uh, for the band. And uh, physically different, too. Uh, so I thought, I said, I'd like to have your child, but you don't have to worry about it because I'll support it, you know, as a, as a child. I'll support the child. So he was pleased with that. He likes children until they uh, develop a sense of logic. Then they're in trouble because he's, he can get real nasty if you have your own opinion. And that happens when you're six, seven, something like that. But he's real good with children that are younger than... Look, so after China hit six or seven... Then it started getting gnarly. Was he still hands-on or did he distance himself? Yeah. No, he'll be hands-on. And he is not physically violent with anybody, but verbally, yeah. And then when does it end with Paul? Must be seventy three. Does it end on its own, or it's because, or it's because Skip's in the picture? Seventy three. Skip was in the picture, <clears throat> but I don't think Paul knew about it because Skip, at one point, uh, about a year before nineteen seventy two, we were uh, in the Midwest in a bar on the main floor of the hotel. There were a lot of Midwesterners around. Skip came downstairs to hang out with us. In my red dress, <laughs> hairy legs, one dollar socks, you know, dumb shoes, mustache, hair. He didn't act any different. He didn't try to come on like he just acted like Skip, no, straight face, no, nothing. But Paul thought that any man who put a dress on was probably gay, even if he's trying to be funny, because Paul couldn't imagine wearing a dress. So I got away with hanging out with Skip for about a year because Paul thought he was gay. So I thought, oh, that's nice. So <laughs> that's what happened there. And then one day I just uh, uh, called up our truck driver who drove our equipment around and said, come on over. I'm going to take a couple of things and I'm moving to Sausalito. I'm out of here. And he did. Mike Fisher came over and helped me move. <laughs> and what did Paul say about that? Well, he wasn't very happy, but he's not very good to live with either. You know, there's a part of him that's uh, uh, very sweet and revolutionary and strong and all that kind of thing. There's a part that's just so nasty you don't want to deal with it. I don't know where it comes from. China, who is his daughter, said he has issues and stuff. The kids use that. Word now, I call her a kid. She's almost fifty, but they say well, he has issues. Well, everybody has issues. You can't act like a jerk just because you have issues. If you got issues, go fix them. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't want to live with people who have issues and don't want to fix it. Okay, so then 
you embark with the Jefferson Starship, and then you have the monster album Red Octopus. Yeah. Did you anticipate that being as successful as it was? No, I had no idea. But that's largely Marty's uh, uh, album. But by the same token, you have Play on Love on that album. Yeah, but that wasn't really a single. I know, but the, he had he did miracles. Yeah, I'm talking about the album in general as a fan, as opposed to looking. I love Play on Love. Well, good. I'm glad you did. Okay, and, and a then lot, a lot of people liked that album. It was it, it did well? Okay, and eventually, <laughs> Marty drops out, Paul drops out, and you do We Built This City. How do you feel about We Built This City? No, thank you. <laughs> okay, there's a okay. Lot of here's the deal. My, for me, this is not mean I'm right or wrong either. It's just I'm more comfortable when the band is writing their own songs. We had, I think, three, two or three number one hits in the '80s, but they're not our songs, and they're dumb. And I love Diane Warren, but nothing's going to stop us now. I think a Mack truck will uh, nail you right in the middle of the road. And more than 50% of the people get married get divorced. What do you mean nothing's going to stop us now? <laughs> you know, and we built a city on rock and roll. That's stupid. What city? There's no city built. Rock and roll's too new. What are you talking? London's been around forever. San Francisco's built on gold and shipping. Uh, L.A.'s built on oranges and oil and the movie. And what city are you talking about? Who built this city? Everybody thought we were talking about San Francisco. No, it was written by Bernie Taupin. And Bernie was talking about the clubs closing in L.A. What are you talking? Do you... It's supply and demand this country operates on. If people want clubs, they will get clubs. The police can close up stuff for a short period of time, but you can bet the heavenly city planning fathers want money, and you keep those clubs open. They'll open again. Don't worry about it. Now, Bernie Toppin's an amazing songwriter, but we all have our... Uh, misses. Even though it went to number one, I call it a miss because it's a stupid song. Rolling Stone said it was stupid. I agree with him. Stupid. How uh, how do you decide to retire? From uh, the, from the I'm band? imitating myself, and that's that's not very artistic. And I'm almost fifty. That's enough. Because if you continue to do rock and roll after you're fifty, it's kind of silly. Because rock and roll is a young person's medium. That's storming the citadel, you know. And when you're 50, you ought to be able to, you ought to be around trying to figure out how to keep the citadel from being uh, hideous. Or you ought to try to figure out how to organize the kids who want to storm, you know, be a producer or something. But leaping around on a stage after you're 50 for me is just not cool. Well, what do you think about everybody who's doing it? Then they're comfortable with it. So, but you don't judge them. No, they can. Everybody can do whatever they want, except kill people. That's the only thing you can't do in rock and roll. So, what are you most proud of in your music career? Persistence. Persistence. So, I was talking about specific, not characteristics of your identity. There aren't specifics because there are parts of. A number of different songs that I like, but not an entire thing. Like I said, White Rabbit is very lucrative for me, but 
It's not written well because I was aiming it at the parents. And you don't get that when you hear it. So the lyric is not as good as it could be. Uh, there, I like parts of, uh, of Eskimo Blue Day, but it's too long and it's not as understandable as it could be lyrically. Music's okay. Uh, I like some songs from a solo album called Dreams, not Airplane, not Starship. So there are chunks of stuff that I like, but I haven't written anything that is good from beginning to end, lyrically and musically. So, I don't think. Do you still listen to your own work? No. Do you listen to the music at all? Yes. What uh, what's currently on my thing is... Uh, Peter Gabriel's Melted Face album okay. right now is on my uh, Right, right. Deck. That's the best one he ever did, the third uh, Mercury record. So, who was the love of your life? Skip Johnson. So why did you get divorced? Because both of us wouldn't stop working. In other words, he has his stuff, production, managing, and I had my stuff, which was uh, rock and roll, singer. And uh, we were both in different states most of the time. So it was stupid. And our accountant called up and said, you know, you guys, really, this is dumb. So we finally got a divorce. But uh, he comes out here since the fire. He's come out here uh, maybe two weeks. Then he'll go back for a month to uh, New Hope, Pennsylvania, which is where he lives. And then he comes out here for two weeks. And he works like a maniac around here fixing stuff. Now, has he ever found a new love? Yeah. He's got a girl who lives with him there. Okay. And uh, so in terms of your – so how did you get into the painting? Uh, I did that before music. I I would draw an angel and my parents would make a Christmas card out of it, you know. So I did that before music. So you started doing that after you retired? Yeah. And what point did you say, okay, I want to show this work and I want to sell this work? I didn't – my – uh, accountant knows this agent who also has done handled some of Jerry Garcia's work and some of John Lennon's lithographs. He's not an international agent or anything. So I started working with him, do gallery shows, and I did really well in New Jersey and Denver and Sausalito for some reason, but not in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> and so at this point, you're you're still painting. How frequently? Yeah, every day. Every day, and is that stuff still shown up for sale? Yeah, there's going to be a show in September. I don't know the teenth September something teenth <laughs> at a uh, uh, rock and roll kind of art stuff because um, the brain artistic people can usually go from genre to genre because all the same part of the brain. A lot of musicians paint. Right. Marty painted uh, uh, Rolling Stone, Ronnie Wood. He was handled by some of the same galleries. Uh, Jerry Garcia, uh, you know, I can uh, David Bowie. That happens a lot. So um, there's a gallery down here that handles rock uh, crossover. So... How do you feel about your artistic work? Are you satisfied with your career? Yeah, I am because uh, I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun, which I include 
in the enjoyment, in the satisfaction. Uh, if you're, if it's a drudge, then you're doing something wrong. Uh, pick something you like. Two things: you like it, you're good at it. Do that. <laughs> yeah. And any regrets? Only that I never nailed uh, Jimi Hendrix and Peter O'Toole. Never learned how to ride a horse. I've never been to the Middle East, and I can't do any of those things now. So, too bad. What do you think you about... When you're old, you don't regret what you did. You regret what you didn't do. That's really kind of what I was asking. So yeah. you certainly answered that. What do you think about the state of our country? Well, it's sad. Uh, but what's really sad about it is not... Donald Trump's a jerk. That's obvious. But he's not the problem. The problem is when you realize how many people voted for him. And you go, holy moly, we are in deep doo-doo. That many people uh, are thinking that way, that's trouble. So that's what's scary. He's not scary. He's just a clown. But that many people voting for him, that's scary. Now, we used to believe in the 60s and early 70s, music could change the world. And certainly you and the Jefferson Airplane pushed that envelope. Do you think you made a difference? I think so. It's it's uh, incremental and it's... Uh, Spot. It's like the fire in Malibu. The spot fires. It jumps over here, and this is good. But do you think without the 60s push, we could have had Barack Obama, and we were lucky to have him. He's probably the most elegant, well-behaved, he and his wife, president, uh, like ever in my lifetime. Especially good for being born in Africa. Yeah. <laughs> Especially for being from Kenya. Right, exactly. But he was just wonderful. It was so, ah, oh, watching him uh, speak. You know, he knows how to do, he knew how to do that. Trump doesn't know how to do that. He's a mess. And let me try to figure out how to say this. Uh, it's a hideous job, by the way. Right. Okay. I don't know why, you know, you grew uh, up, I remember going to elementary school and they said anybody could be president. You just have to be born in America. Nowadays, who would want to be president? Who, yeah. It's like being CEO of the country. Uh, That's just crazy. God. Yeah. That is just no, no, no. <laughs> and so you obviously, I mean, you're, you're a unique character. That's for sure. And they broke the mold when they made you. Were you a fan of music in your era? No, I didn't like Elvis Presley because uh, I went over my boyfriend at the time, Joe McCarthy, his sister said, you got to come over. You got to hear this guy. It was a 45, black and blue, with a picture of a guy going like this on it with right, about... Right. Oh, yeah, that's a raised lip for those about people. A, about, about a ton of Vaseline or something in his hair. And I said, oh, that's gross. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. I said, that's the stupidest song. I was listening to Edward Grieg. Pure against sweet. I was listening to Rachmaninoff. I was not. But of your era, who were your favorites? My era? Okay. The, the When the Beatles first came out, somebody said, oh, you got to come over and see the Beatles. Well, there's guys who were 25. They're all dressed alike. I want to hold your hand. I thought, no, uh-uh. But then I saw the Rolling Stones. and said, that is rock. <laughs> That's rock and roll. <laughs> so That's funny because back in that era, people don't realize – there was a big war. You were either a Beatles fan or a Stones fan. Yeah, I was Rolling Stones. But then 
the Beatles flipped over from uh, being cutesy. And that was their manager's fault. They weren't cutesy before right. that. They were tough boys in Germany that, you know, with the black leather jackets and everything. Uh, what's his name? Whoever their manager was. Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein changed that thing. Oh, wear all these right. little suits. I'm sorry, they're too old to be that cute. So I didn't like that. But they changed because they're not stupid. And they started really writing some good stuff. So I'm both a Beatles and Stones fan after a while. Okay. And you say you're difficult. I haven't heard that in this conversation. Give me a couple of examples of where you're difficult. Okay. Let me use the words my mother used to use when she was annoyed. Do you have to be so terse? <laughs> Do you have to be so curt with people? So I'm terse and curt. And I told her, well, the terse and curt is like I don't like to waste time. That this, if you're just straight shoot right into the, whatever the heart of the problem, I said, I don't want any frills. I don't even wear jewelry. I wear a watch. That's it. I don't like frills. I don't like lacy things. That's not my thing. My daughter's lacy and has birds on her dresses and stuff. That's because that's, she's comfortable that way. I'm not. So, uh, terse and curt is uh, part of the deal. So it doesn't sound like you suffer fools. Well, I don't know about that phrase, but uh, I'll just go for the jugular. And <laughs> you have legs. If you don't like it, it's very easy for you to move. And so with hindsight, do you wish you handled some interactions in a different way? Let's see. What have I, I would have paid a little more attention to the business end, the music business, because it's called the music business right. for a reason. So I would have paid a little more attention to the business end. Okay. This has been wonderful. We certainly got insight into who you are, <laughs> which is the number one vision I have with this podcast. So you've been listening to Grace Slick. Grace, thanks so much for doing this. Well, thank you for pulling it out. <laughs> Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. 
If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.